Guys, this is Carl Reed here with my co-host, Carl Nunu Washington, with the Run Up the Score podcast. We got our special guest, our boy, our longtime friend, former <laughs> Ohio State receiver coach, and now the uh, director of the Menace to Society podcast, which is uh, one of the biggest podcasts in the nation right now, Zach Smith. What's up with you, bro? Man, I'm just happy to reconnect with you guys, man. I'm fired up to do this. What's up, Zach? What's the word, homie? Man, it's been a minute. How you doing? I'm good, bro. I'm good. Yeah. Hey, bounce back man of the year, Zach Smith, the one and only, straight out the main streets of Ohio. <laughs> my guy, my guy Zach Smith, my hey, guy. You are, you are lying. So, hey, how, how you been, man? Tell everybody how you been and, you know, what you got going on. Yeah, I'm great, man. I've never been better. I mean, you know, it was obviously an insane situation that that I say happened to me, but I, I caused some of it. A lot of it I didn't cause. The media just caused it. But um, it was a it was a crazy situation. I never imagined going through something like that. It was wild for like six months. Um, you, you heard the song "Outside Today" by NBA YoungBoy. I played it every day, every day in my house. I played that song because there was reporters outside of my house on my street just waiting for me to show my face for six months. And so I would just play it as loud as I could. And I stayed in the house for six months and it was wild um, and, and mostly wild because my kids had to deal with it. Right. Other kids asking them, what would what, your dad do? Stuff like that. Um, but it's been awesome since then. Um, I, I just I was sitting there at home probably four months after I got fired. I'm like, all right. I mean, I got two options. Right. I could just just go off into the sunset and, and go get I don't know what kind of job. I was kind of unhirable in, in Ohio for sure. Um, I wasn't going to move away because I had kids here. And um, so I had to figure out what to do, like how I'm going to spin this into something good for me uh, and good for my family. So I took on the villain role on social media, made every, everybody think I was crazy to get him to tune into this podcast. And I was just going to do it for fun, just to kind of tell my side of the story. And it exploded. I mean, it, it started off. I was I had this grand dream that it was going to be the menace to society, like I was going to preach about what I thought was wrong with sports, society, everything. And it's it's really it's transformed into just a sports podcast and it's definitely different than, than anything else you listen to because I don't care. Like I, I don't plan on getting back in coaching, no desire to. It's funny when you coach, you're in a bubble. Like you don't realize that you don't have, you have such a minimal impact in your own kids' lives because you're just yeah. never with them, right? You're never around them. And, and, it, and when you get out of it and you find a different path and I'm sitting here coaching my son's sixth grade tackle football team, my daughter's uh, nine-year-old travel softball team, like all this stuff that I'm doing now. I'm like, man, I, I can't give this up now. I've done the high-level college coaching. I got to do this now. This is my 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 time to be with my kids. So it's been fun, man. It's been fun finding a path. It's been really hard at times, but it's also I've, I've been blessed with a lot of people that that wanted to hear my side of the story. You know what I mean? And wanted to, to, to listen to me and be like, is this guy a bad guy or not? Like that's what they wanted to find out. Yeah, I, I think I think to be a – to be a, a elite high level recruiter, everybody got to be like an asshole in a sense, and, and and it's not a it's not a bad thing. Is that that's just part of the job? Yeah. Like when when Ohio State send you out and they give you that budget, you better come back with something. Oh yeah. Okay. You can't just be like you know what, I, I, the fish wasn't biting. You know what I'm saying? Like no, you can't. <laughs> I don't think. Like, like, I'm gonna tell y'all a story. So, we in the lobby. It's me, Marcus, Jameson, Jameson, Daddy, 
And we got Zach in the, and we we sit down there having a drink. And so, so I said, people hey. that don't know though, before you start, you talking about current Alabama star receiver Jamison Williams that also went to that started his career at Ohio State. That's what we're talking about when he say when he says Jamison. But before you tell the story, I'll tell you this: people told me I was I was crazy for bringing Marcus and Jamison in the same weekend. They're like, why would you do that? Like, those are two of the top receivers in the country, both from, from St. Louis. Like, why would you bring them both in the same weekend? And I was like, because I want both of them to come together. Like, I don't want to bring them in separate weekends. So it's like I might get one of the two. Like, I wanted both of them. That's why I did it. Hey, it, it, so so we're sitting in the lobby. So we sitting there having a drink. And I'm like, man, this dude BSing, man. It's 11 o'clock, man. Let's go. On, let's get to the meat and potatoes. Who you want, man? You want Marcus? You on Jameson. Go on, tell the truth. Ain't nobody going to be mad. Dude looked me dead in the face and said, you know what? I want both of them. They two type of different receivers. Marcus is my front side possession guy. Jameson going to take the top off the defense running down the back of the field. And I looked at Jameson and he looked at me and we both fell out laughing. <laughs> and hey, so dude, like he, not a, like, he told the truth. Because I told him, I said, Zach, if you have my son up here just blocking all day, Man, there's going to be some consequences and repercussions, man. <laughs> like, straight up, Zach, man, don't have me down here. We kicking it. You talking about you, my partner, and all this BS, man. And Marcus get up and he, he just cracked back. No, I, I will tell you this. I knew what I, I knew what type of conversations we were getting into. And here's how I knew, Carl. You don't know this story. All so right. I go to see Marcus at the, at the high school. Right? <laughs> and this man comes to the high school when I told him I was going to be there. One, I, I can't meet with him, right? Right. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to meet with the dads or the moms or anyone. He just shows up. I'm walking out with Marcus and and I can't remember the coach. And you don't need to say his name even if you remember. <laughs> but, but we're walking out with an assistant coach who, the minute I got there, is like trying to be my best friend. Show me around the school. I never heard of this guy. Met the guy. Nothing. And so we're he's like showing me everything, asking about do we have any jobs at Ohio State, any quality control positions, all this stuff. And we walk out the building, and this man walks up and meets us as I'm walking out, and was like. Hey, man, I appreciate you coming out to see Marcus. I just want to stop by and say hi. I mean, just so you know, we do not F with this guy right here at all. Like, we, we don't like him. Whatever he said to you, he's full of shit. And he just and the guy's standing right next to me. I'm like, oh, my God. He is just letting me hey, know man, whatever why, this guy said. Why can you never behave, man? <laughs> no, listen, listen. So, listen. This is what people didn't understand. If I came from nothing... And I don't work my, my and I ain't trying to curse, but I work my ass off to put Marcus through school. I'm the one who trained him. I'm the one who did everything. Now we get to the serious part. I'm not going to let nobody mess it up. No. And I'm willing to go to prison or die about this because this is my kid future, Reed. Like you just pop up at the school talking about you speak for my son. Come on, bro. You don't even know his grandma. Yeah, right. You don't even know his favorite color. You don't like, come on. No, this so is serious. So y'all, you you both are touching on something like Zach. You talked about you coaching your son's team now, and I know Nunu. Obviously, you you came up. Uh, Nunu actually coached my son in youth football. Also, Zach. Yeah, All right. So, what do you feel like is the status of youth sports right now across the country, Zach? Like when I look across youth football at a lot of places, it's out of control. Some people do a really good job, but it's a lot of foolishness that goes on. We still like, for example, for me. I see a lot of teams that are playing 30 games or more on the yeah. youth football level. I Like, it's guys that are playing year-round football. It's kids tackling every day. Like, and you see a lot of um, 
out of control parents and out of control things, kind of from what you're seeing now being involved in youth football, what are some of the issues that you're seeing? Well, you know, I, th I think the, the biggest problem that I saw and, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to coach, right? I didn't want to put that pressure on my kid. Like I coached at Ohio state, Florida, like, you know, I'm, and he knew that. And he, you know, he's always trying to like appease me and like make me proud. And I was like, he can do that with me in the stands. Like I'm not trying to coach, but I found out two days before the season started that the coach, the coach's kid decided he didn't want to play football. So there was no coach. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have a coach. I decided to do it. And the biggest thing I saw is, is so many dads trying to, live through their kid and not thinking of what's in their best interest, right? From, from style of plays to what they were teaching. Like you said, how many games they play, like stuff like that, where you're like, well, why are we playing 50 games or 30 games or whatever it is? It's like in college football, they play 14. These kids are 11. Like they need to be playing eight games, right? Like, and that should be it. Year round football is crazy. Let them go play basketball. Let them go play baseball. Let them go play something else. Um, so that was a big issue I saw. The other thing I saw is just the, the the level of teaching is so poor. Just basic, basic fundamentals. Like the stuff, I'm, I think my most proud accomplishment as a football coach to date was just the basic foundation fundamentals that I was able to teach, you know, the 22 kids on our team. Because they're going to go to middle school and have a leg up on everybody. Because I'm watching these other other teams. They don't, they don't understand, you know, what is, like, just like what is zone blocking? Like we're all going to block to the right to this gap. And if there's a guy there, we'll double team him to a linebacker. And these kids are like all the other, I had two assistant coaches that were dads and they, the first day they looked at me like, Oh, this guy's over his head. He doesn't understand. Like this is not college football. These kids won't learn that. Well, man, by, by the first game, I didn't even have to call the plays. Like these kids, if I, if I just said 12 read, I didn't have to give them a tip or anything. They understood zone blocking, gap scheme, blocking, tackling fundamentals, blocking fundamentals. I mean, everything. And it just, it's unfortunate that like, that's the, that's what matters when you're 11, right? If you teach those foundation fundamentals, it doesn't matter if you win. It doesn't matter if you play 30 games. It, none of that matters. Teach these kids the core fundamentals so they can one, like the game because they do better. And two, they move on and they have a foundation built where then other coaches can build on that. Right. And you know, coach, coach Reed, you, you're a high school coach. You would love to get a group of freshmen come in that had great blocking and tackling fundamentals. That would be like a dream, right? Yeah. Because that almost never happens. Never. Right. right? Never. But I, it, it never happens. Guys come in so unprepared. Oh. Um, they don't know very basic elementary things and, and they've really been cheated out of an incredible youth experience. But you got to ask yourself about youth football who it's about right like that's the million dollar question if it's about the kids then it's going to be about the kids if it's about the adults then it's going to be about the adults the adults like parents you i'm glad i got both of y'all you corey when the kid come in from the eighth grade you're not caring about it if he played for some super elite st louis football team mm -hmm. And Zach, when you're recruiting a kid, you don't care about that either. No. But but parents think that they 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 gotta align themselves with travel uh all your football teams to be good. I just I, I always said with my kid, like when he tried out for travel baseball, right? He made the B team and, and he will he wanted to make the A team, right? And, and and I looked at him, I was like, listen, 
This is about being on a team and getting reps and just playing the game, right? Because you know how many kids at 11 are the best player on their travel football team. By the time high school comes, they're five, six, and, and you know, don't even play football anymore. It's like, th that doesn't matter. Let's just play the game, have fun, learn the game, and learn some fundamentals. And later on, we'll figure out who's really, really good. Yeah. Okay, let's let's jump into uh, college football. No, let's, let's start at recruiting. Out of high school, Zach, as a, as a re former recruiter, what are the three things you look for in any kid that you're recruiting? The first thing I always look for is somebody that I thought had like a dog mentality. Like they were they they had they were a dog on the field. They loved they loved to play. They wanted to be great. Right. That's the first thing. And they could they could take hard coaching. Right. Like they because I I had a couple kids I recruited that when, once you brought them in. They, they just didn't like getting told that wasn't very good. You need to do this. Like they couldn't handle it. Right. And so I needed that first and foremost. I needed to know they wanted to be great and they could go through the process of becoming great. Uh, that was the first thing. And honestly, that was the most important thing that I look for. So many times they would, you know, we would get these lists from our recruiting department. Like here's the receivers in order that we ranked them based on film. And then I would go out in the schools and meet these kids. And I'm like, I reshuffled the whole thing. Like, nope. This kid's not the number one re receiver in the country. He might be talented, but he's he's 12 for me, you know. And, and once you get to know kids, you know it. And, and that's why I love Marcus so much. That's why I love Jameson. And there's other kids that I had. Cameron Babb, I know he he had injuries that killed his career, but but he had it too. Like, just yeah. you knew after you walked away, like, this kid is going to do everything to be great, and I'm going to give him the tools, and I'm going to invest time in him. That's what I'm looking for. Not some kid that, you know – and not to get regionally because there's kids everywhere that are that are both sides. But a lot of times you go to South Florida and they're, 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 they're fewer and far between. I had a kid named Johnny Dixon from South Florida that was that way. He would do anything to be great. And, and so that was the first thing. The second thing I looked for was was just a playmaker. Right. I didn't. People got enamored with speed. Probably the best receiver I coached was Michael Thomas. And he might have been the slowest. Right. <laughs> so I just look for somebody that had that going back to dog mentality that just made plays like. Like game on the line, they're covered. They go up and get the ball, right? Like they're 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 in the coach's ear late in the game. Michael Thomas, when we lost to Michigan State, was yelling at Urban Meyer, like mfing him about they're about to kick a game winning field goal. About put me on the field, I'm gonna block the field goal. Like like most receivers are sitting over there, like man, I hope they don't make it. This dude's cussing out the head coach, telling me put me on the field. What's wrong with you, right? That's what I'm looking for. That guy that want that 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 has that mentality and then obviously you need the physical ability you need to be able to run you need some some form of speed ball skills at receiver but but the stuff before that that i said that's that tra you know transcends position that could be a tackle that let, could be a let, let me ask you this yeah that dog mentality now we're just being 100 honest right 100 yeah. honest that yeah. at big high level colleges the ohio states the alabamas the clemsons the texas the floridas at these power five big georgia schools do y'all really want a guy on y'all football team that really want to be like a brain surgeon? And, and, and like, be honest. Uh, you know, it, it's tough. Uh, they they got yes and no, right? Um, you don't want a guy that's just going to college to play football and get his degree. We had a guy, Joshua Perry, who, I mean, he's he's the most one of the most impressive players I've ever been around. And he, he could be run for president. And academics were really important to him. And he was going to do, you know, go his career path. And that was the first priority. But he was also a dog on the field. He loved football. You know what I mean? So 
And so we would make, you know, a guy like that goes to class, does everything right. He's a dog on the field. He's 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 grinding to become a great player. And he might have to miss a little practice time because he's taking this accounting class. Like we make we we make adjustments for him. But some kid that doesn't go hard in the weight room, doesn't try hard at football, doesn't want to be great and just wants to go to med school. We had a, I had a receiver like that. And eventually we told him it was time to move on. He had to find somewhere else to play because he didn't care about football. He only cared about going to med school. And so it it comes down to it. You got to care about both. And if you do, at, at least at Ohio State, now I will tell you, not every place is like that. Even, you know, a lot of a lot of big schools are like, what? Med school? You have to miss Thursday practice. No, you can switch your major. That's how most of them do it. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this: that you, so you talk about the dog mentality. You talk about the kid telling Urban Meyer to put him in the game. For for people who don't know, what was what was Urban Meyer like? What was he like for the guys to play for? What was he like um, to work for? Because obviously Jacksonville situation didn't go well for him, and so a lot of people don't understand. I've dealt with him as a high school coach. He was always great to me. He was always great to my kids. Um, and, and he was one of the best college coaches, I think, that the game has ever seen. Um, but what was he like? And also, why do you think it didn't work out in Jacksonville? You know, the thing about him was, and, and people say this, you know, I got offered a job by Nick Saban and people before I decided if I was going to take it or not told me the same things about him. And I was like, that's nothing to me. I mean, I've dealt with Urban for for 10 years. Urban Meyer pushed both player and coach so hard and he made things so uncomfortable with 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 uncomfortable truths right a lot of times kids they need to hear the truth but they don't want to hear the truth same with coaches maybe even more so with coaches you get a coach that's been coaching college football for 20 years making five hundred thousand dollars a year that guy thinks he's great and he doesn't want to be told that his drills suck or he's not a very good coach and needs to get better so urban would would do that stuff to you and put you in really uncomfortable positions and a lot of a lot of people don't like that a lot of players didn't like that. A lot of coaches didn't like that. So a lot of coaches would leave and talk about how they couldn't work for Urban Meyer. It was brutal. I personally, I loved it because it challenged me and made me 10 times the coach I was when I met him, right, or when I got to Ohio State. And players, too. Players hate Urban. A lot of times, some of them never get over it, but most of them, once they get through the process and they become – great players they really get maximized they see the process they see why he acted the way he acted and then they become really close they have a strong bond because they know he was just trying to bring the best out in them um and that's what made him great he's also an extremist like everything is fourth and one the end of the world like if a kid misses one class i mean he is gonna fire the coach kick the kid off the team and it's like coach it was one class the kid overslept he's like you can't oversleep like just would go off off the deep end about it um, so that, that's what made him great. He was so extreme and everything was a panic mode, right? That, that was never going to translate to the NFL ever. I mean, you're, you're not dealing with some kid that's a young kid, doesn't know any better, um, and can't go anywhere. Cause before the transfer portal, those kids were locked in unless they wanted right. to sit a year. So I, I think he would have a challenge going back to college right now with the, the landscape, the way it is now with NIL and transfer portal. I mean, it's like the mini NFL, right? Yeah. Um, and so, that was never going to work in Jacksonville. I never thought it was going to. I said on my show, in order for it to work, he has to literally change who he is as a person entirely because it's just it, that, that league is a business. Those are grown men. Like you can't challenge them the way you challenged your, your kids in college. Um, and I, I don't know that you can in college now either, but um, people would say he's extremely hard to work for. I, I kind of liked it because it brought out the best in me. And once you, uh, you know, 
achieved a level of, of respect with him, he relied on you more. You became like an asset to him, both a player and a coach. Like once, once we went through an offensive staff turmoil – in 2015, 2016, really lost us a national championship when we should have won one. Um, and he blew the whole offensive staff up. And I was the one consistent that kind of tried to hold it together for two years. And then we brought in Ryan Day and I and, and I worked with Ryan to teach him the offense and bring in his offense. And it, it, I once I did all that for Urban, he saw the value and he saw me as an asset and the respect level changed entirely. Mm-hmm. So it, it tough to work for, but but you I'm gonna tell you what, you got developed, coach and player, you became a a really, really high-level version of yourself. I was talking one time with Alex Grinch, um, who also worked with with Urban Meyer, and he told me, like you said, it's fourth and one every day. He said that every single day with Urban Meyer, like it's on from the minute you walk in the building. He said it doesn't matter if you're there for eight hours. It doesn't matter if you're there for eight minutes. Like every single second that you spend around Urban Meyer – it's like you feel like your life is on the line and that if yeah. anything goes wrong, it's just it's the worst possible thing in the world that can happen. Like just an unrivaled in, in intensity out of him day in and day out. And you know what? He's he's a master motivator and he's a psychology major. And Tom Herman and I used to say early in our time at, at Ohio State that the worst feeling in the world working for Urban is when everything is going right. And, and Tom looked at me one day because I was in charge of third down red zone. Um, my players were playing at a really high level. This is 2014. We were number one in the country on third down, number one in the country in the red zone. I had like three three kids committed that were like high-level recruits. Like everything in my job description was going really well. And Tom Herman walked in and was like, watch out, watch out. Because when things are going really well, that's where he just plants a time bomb and explodes something and creates an issue because tr- he tries to motivate you. And when things are going well, you don't even see it coming because you're like, he can't mess with me right now. Everything <laughs> I'm doing is great. And that's when he just blindsides you and finds something like you didn't write 20 recruiting letters today and it just goes off on you and fires you. <laughs> so let me ask you this. When you talked about he may even struggle today with the NIL and the transfer portal, the whole thing. I, I, a college coach told me in the SEC a couple weeks back that the transfer portal is like, be, imagine in the NFL if every single player was a free agent every year, right? right? That's pretty much what it equates to. What would what, what? How would you be successful now in the transfer portal era? Well, one, I think you're you're going to have to lose the whole um, like disciplinarian tough guy to an extent, right? Until until that player's really bought in and really knows that you, you know you're you're coaching and teaching to bring the best out in them and you you got to coach each guy appropriately like not you can't coach everybody the same but the one thing that i think is interesting to look at as this you know keeps moving forward because this just got thrown on everyone and it's just right now it's panic like how do you like how do you create nil slush funds like how do you get these kids paid like how do you control this so it's not just go out of control which it kind of already is and then the transfer portal it's been like oh just like Dabo Sweeney on one hand doesn't even like doesn't even acknowledge it exists. And then you're looking at Alabama just pulling in kid after kid, high level players. And um, but I think what's interesting is is utilizing the transfer portal as a percentage of your roster, right? So instead of signing 25 kids, you sign 18 and commit seven guys to the portal because once they use their one time transfer rule, it's kind of back to the old, right? They can't just go jump in the portal again. So right. now you can coach them a little harder. So I think the portal's becoming a way to go find, you know, maybe 40% of your roster and still have that that 
you have them locked in, right? You have them locked into your program. They're committed. They've already made a mistake or whatever, or needed another opportunity and they come in and now they don't have that transfer opportunity. And I think that's how college is going to start to use it. Let, let, let me ask you this, Zach. Yeah. So in the recruiting process and you come into Kia house, like the number one question the kid want to ask, want to answer is he gonna is he going to play as a freshman? Right. right? So do you think a percentage of the kids, if you tell them, no, they not, you're going to lose them as a recruit? I mean, yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and and I always answered that question the same way. Like, I can't promise you anything. And you can see the roster. You can see the players. I'll, I'll send you cut-ups of all of them. I think you have a chance to play, and I'm certainly going to give you the opportunity because that's what a lot of – sometimes kids don't get. They don't get the opportunity to compete to play early. Right? And see, I, a, lot, a lot of people think when the kid entered the transfer portal – they don't want to. They don't want to compete. But a lot of time, it'd be they just got lied to. Yeah, right. A lot of times, kids come in and think they're gonna have an opportunity, and then they find themselves on a scout team before they've even had a chance to learn the offense and and try to go compete for a job. And and um, I always made sure my players knew the offense in and out day one of training camp, so they had the opportunity. And and that's on the coach. Like if that kid's making mistakes all over the place, it's because you didn't spend enough time teaching him the offense before you got there. Um, but but I think um. I really, I really think that that kids in in recruiting they they have to be able to see big picture, and a lot of kids aren't going to, especially with NIL. Like they're not going to see like the kid Quinn Ewers that transferred to Texas, and I and I love Sark. He's probably the best quarterback coach in the country, but that kid left Ohio State without giving Ohio State a chance. I mean, he he came in in the middle of training camp in a loaded room, couldn't learn, didn't have the time to learn the offense, didn't have the time to do anything. So he couldn't really get reps because he didn't know anything. He showed up in the middle of training camp. And then at the end of the year, he transferred out. It's like, wait a minute, why? You came early to make a million dollars. You did that. You came and set yourself behind an eight ball because you can't learn the offense. And we, you know, practice 15. We've already installed the whole offense and we're trying to get a team ready to play. And that kid dipped out of Columbus like, no, I'm going to go to Texas. Well, okay. Like, was, was that a, a move to just make a million bucks and now you get to go home? Or, you know, what was that? So I think it's hard to sit in in a, in a living room and tell a kid you're going to play as a freshman, but you got to give them a chance because, like you said, with NIL, they'll go somewhere else where they can make money and be on the field. Right now, well, so 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 because the kid want to play, the recruiters a lot to him. I mean, a lot of them will, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, like, what 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 would you tell what would you tell a kid coming from high school? Trans getting ready to come to college. What what is the two or three things you need to make sure you do when you get on campus? Well, I'm gonna tell you the first thing I'm doing, and I used to tell recruits this because you know, like you guys know as well as anyone, a lot of these programs aren't what they're being sold as, right? When a recruiter's telling you about about how he is as a coach or what you're gonna do or what the program's like, like they're they're just trying to sell kids. And so what I used to tell recruits all the time and what I would tell my kid if he's getting recruited or any high school kid is when you get on campus, find a way to go talk to some players away from the facility, away from the coaches, like and really hang out with them and get to know them and, and talk to them about the program. Ask them questions like what what is Coach Smith like? Wait, what is Urban Meyer like? Like what are workouts like? Like when you came in, how was your freshman year? Like you ask those questions to the players because those players will tell the truth. Like they're not going to sit there and bullshit a kid. Now the coaches will. But you go talk to those players and don't just talk to the guy that's an All-American. Like, he's obviously loving life, right? He obviously loves the program. He's getting all the passes. Like, he's he's All-American. He's going to make be a millionaire. Go talk to the kids as maybe the, the third-string X or the backup quarterback and ask, ask them what it's like. Because those kids away from the facility, they'll tell you the truth. Um, that's the biggest thing I would tell a kid in recruiting. 
The second thing is Google is your best friend. And I got I got a big time defensive end out of Virginia Beach named Jalen Holmes one time, born and raised a Florida State fan. Florida State got almost everybody from the 757. And I got him because um I was just genuine. I was real with him. And he had a coach recruiting him from Florida State that all he talked about, oh, our academics are the best in the country. I mean, we you're, you're going to have a high-level degree. Like, you're going to graduate X, Y, and you're going to do this and do that. And I just looked at him and said, Jalen, I don't care about Florida State. I'm, I'm not going to even talk about them. Go Google them. Go Google how how big time their degree is. Go see what their, their graduation rate is and what their APR is. Go see what their football team APR is. Just Google it. I don't need to tell you. You can find out, right? Go find out. And when he did, he was like, damn, this dude's lying to me. And I was like, there you go. And immediately, Florida State was out, and he came to Ohio State. <laughs> so let me ask you this. We, we, you, you, you hit on something very important there. How important is it when a kid is picking colleges to go somewhere where they're going to help you get a job when you leave? It's, like It's, it's everything. I, I see a lot of guys. Like, I, I deal with all the coaches, and, and guys come in, and, and you see so many guys who play Power 5 football, and when they get done playing, if they don't make it to the league, like – they're in the worst possible position in life you can be yeah. in, right? Yeah. Uh, they have a general studies degree or yeah. they have a very uh, sociology. They have a low-level degree um, and, and nobody is helping them with any job prospects and they end up substitute teaching. And, and I'm not saying it's wrong uh, to anybody that's a substitute teacher or anything like that, but they're, they're not helping them. Um, they're not helping them move on. How important is it for a kid to look in those situations and say, I, I better pick a school that is going to help me have a career in the event that the NFL doesn't work out. You have to. You have to because it, it's even deeper than that, right? Because a lot of times when you say that to a kid, he's like, but no, but I'm, I'm going to make it to the NFL. It's like, okay, make it to the NFL. If you have the place that sets you up and builds connections, like even if you make a ton of money in the NFL – those connections are going to help you in the phase after the NFL, right? When you want to go start a business, a good friend of mine played, played for Notre Dame, played for the Bengals. And after he, and he did everything right, right? He, he, he built all the networks, bridges in the world. The minute he got done playing, he probably made like eight, maybe $5 million, $8 million total, you know, then taxes and everything else gets taken out. So he ends up with $3 million, let's say that's great. Like you're set. But you can really make that generational money with that money. And with the connections he built, he built a hotel. Now he owns a hotel. Then he made another guy from Notre Dame helped him start a big home care company. Now he owns a home care company. So you're talking about stacking money for generational wealth. Yeah. So I always told my guys, this is not, it doesn't have to be just plan B. This could be like an extension of plan A if you do make it. But then if you don't make it, you need that network and you need to go to a place that's going to connect those dots because you look at Texas or Ohio State. I mean, you talk about power. The amount of people with big money that love football at those schools is insane. And if you don't go to a program that's going to make build that bridge for you, like put you in front of those money people, you're not going to build that bridge. They might know your name, but you're not going to have a relationship and build a connection while you're playing when it when it, when the iron's hot. So I know Ohio State has a great program. I'm sure there's a bunch of schools that do. Um, and I know there's a bunch of schools that don't. So right. you need to really see what is this real-life application at the school? Like, do they have a program to connect me with people that hire people, right? Do they have a job fair? Do they have, like, like Ohio State has huge connections like Cardinal Health, a bunch of Fortune 500 companies, and they have a job fair. And those companies come in to meet football players because everybody wants to have a competitive guy that works hard. And that's what a football player is in college football. And so they got to build the bridge, help you build the bridge. And then you got to take it from there. At some point, you got to do it, right? 
But you, you got to be careful going to a place that all they do is tell you their graduation rate and you meet with an academic advisor and move on. Like, that's not enough. Nowadays, there's there's thousands of people with a college degree that can't get a job. So just because you graduate doesn't mean anything. Now, what now you touched on something earlier when we were talking about Quinn Ewers. You say that you think Steve Sarkeesian is the best quarterback coach in the country. I mean, his resume speaks for itself, right? What he did at Washington, USC, what he did at Alabama. I mean, just there, there's not – I did a whole episode on it, and, and his resume is second to none. So with you saying that, because it's a lot of bad quarterback play in college football and, and in the NFL, what is separating Sarkeesian from everybody else when you're talking about the pure development of the quarterback position? You know, so what I I don't really know how well he coaches the fundamentals of the position, right? Like I've watched the guys that he's coached, and they're all pretty fundamentally sound. I think that they do a good job fundamentally with the 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 position. But what he does a great job of, he's one, he's he's brilliant with X's and O's. I mean, you could just go turn on the Alabama Ohio State game uh, from the national championship game, and it was just it was a, a work of art the way he attacked that defense. And you watch the quarterbacks when I when I watch a quarterback, I watch his eyes and I watch like how almost robotic he goes through progressions, right? You watch some quarterbacks, they drop back, they're all over the place, They and, and, and their eyes aren't going like boom, boom, boom. And when you watch Sark's quarterbacks play, those their focus is right where it needs to be, and it is just methodical. It's boom, 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 and they get the ball out, right? The other thing I look at with quarterback play is how they are able to adjust protection and protect themselves and maneuver a pocket. And his guys are, were great at Alabama at it. I mean, they would they would identify blitzes, slide protections, and then when they knew the weakness in pass pro, they would they would maneuver the pocket to help their old line out. Things that you don't really see as a fan, you see on film, you're like, whoa, like this guy's got these guys playing at a high level. And I know it takes time. I I I, I don't know how he did at Texas this year with the quarterback play, but um, but it. It's he just does it at a high level. I, Ryan Day does too, and and there's a couple other ones that I've seen that really impress me. Do does um what does he have to do to turn Texas around? Because Texas is at a at a pretty low point right now. And yeah. how did it, how did it get how did it get there? I don't. And, I, that's a great question. I don't and, know how it got there. Um, I think it starts with culture. Um, it starts with, uh, you know, having the culture like in Alabama, like in Ohio State. And I, I think Tom Herman always was uh, had a little bit of a facade to him. Like he was it was a little bit phony, like everything he was trying to do was everything he did was what Urban did. And he didn't that wasn't his personality. Um, so I, I don't know other than that where it went wrong. They got great players all over the place. So it's not talent. Um, I think it's just coaching, teaching and development. And uh, I don't know how long it's going to take. The Big 12 has a problem with 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 defense in general um, outside of Baylor, it was pretty average defensive football across the conference. And now Texas is going to jump to the sec. What in a couple years. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have to learn how to play defense, but it, I think it ultimately comes down to, to elite quarterback play. They got skill at, at receiver. They got a great running back, right? They, it, it's, it comes down to, do they have, do they have a quarterback? And then Sark's going to get him a quarterback. I think Quinn Ewers will be a great player there. And then it's like, can they can they learn to tackle? They, I, when I study the game, the Big 12 misses more tackles than any conference in the country. I don't know if they don't teach it well. I don't know if they don't practice it. I, maybe it's the style of offenses, but they don't tackle well. And, and that's what Baylor did well this year. They tackled well and played defense, and they won the conference. I, the we, when, we, when we say elite, like especially when we talk about quarterbacks, the, is the word elite thrown around too much? Oh, yeah, is way it, too it, much. Is it guys that are just kind of good or they they may be okay, but then people are saying that they're elite top shelf guys? 
Well, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't see an elite quarterback play college football this year. Bryce Young did some magical things. He did some unbelievable things, but he wasn't an elite quarterback. Okay, can we can can we please define the elite? I'm I'm just I'm just lost here. Yeah, I am too because like like Coach Reed said, it gets thrown around a lot. Um, so, what is your definition of elite? I mean, you're talking about a quarterback that's elite. I'm talking about Joe Burrow at LSU, like just can do everything, and you have no answer, right? Joe Burrow was great because if you didn't blitz him, he diced you up. Right. If guys weren't open, he extended the play until they were open. And then if you did blitz him, blitz him, he he was better. So the defenses had no no answer. Right. So when I watch quarterback play, I, I want to see guys that can do those three things. And then also, like we talked about, understand the offense protections, progressions. I mean, it's hard to be a, an elite level quarterback. And and I didn't see one this year. I think Bryce Young is going to be one, but he's young. C.J. Stroud's got to show me some things to become one. And there's a couple other guys out there that that I thought played well. Kenny Pickett at Pitt obviously had a great year. But it, I think it's a really hard thing to be, you know, we're talking about a, an, a future NFL starter for a long time. That's tough. Who, who are some of the top young up-and-coming college coaches you see from a coordinator uh, or maybe even a position coach standpoint that, that people aren't paying attention to that they might should be they might should be looking at? Um, so so one of the best coaches I well, I'll tell you, I'll give you, let's see, I'll give you a couple. One of the best, so these are guys that I've worked with because I know them well, right? Outside of that, it's just what what I hear or what people tell me, which I, so I don't know how much weight to put in that. But, but there's there's three guys that I've worked with that are some of the best I've been around. One of them is Alex Atkins, who's the offensive coordinator, just got promoted at Florida State, offensive coordinator, offensive line coach. He's he's one of the best I've ever been around. Um, and back back when he was at, I think he was at Tulane, and I was at Ohio State, and I'm, I, he was on my list. Like, if I got a head coaching job, he was the first call I was going to make. One, because he's a great O-line coach. Two, because he knows offensive football outside of just the O-line world. He's outstanding. Um, Justin Fry is another one who's an offensive coordinator for Chip Kelly at UCLA, who's going to be a head coach. You know, he's he's my age. So he's probably 36, 37. He'll be a head coach in four years, I would imagine. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Stan Drayton. I, I love Stan Drayton, who just went. Hey, he might coach. be the best running back coach in the country. He's unbelievable. Um, and he just got the Temple job. I love Stan. Yeah. Um, him and I were really good friends, and he's a great football coach. Just mm -hmm. great. Um, and then, you know, Ohio State's got a couple. Uh, Brian Hartline's a guy everyone talks about yeah. as a young guy who recruits really well and, and his guys play really well. Um, there, there's, there's a handful out there that I know personally that I'm, I just look at. I'm like, that's a that's a great one right there. Like I'm sending well, my kid to play for them. So Alex Atkins, um, great offensive line coach. Uh, coach Norville just made him the OC at Florida State. One of seven, I believe, right now that's the number, African-American O-line coaches in the country. And then Stan Drayden, who we all know pretty good, and, and he just got the head job at Temple. What does it take? Like, there's not a, there, there's not a lot of black head coaches, right? right. And there's right. probably even less coordinators on offense and defense. In your opinion, why is that? And what, what kind of needs to happen to start to bridge that gap? Because – Alex Atkins and Stan Drayton are good ball coaches. Sometimes the black coach gets lumped into a um, a role of being a great recruiter, right? That's but it. those guys can really coach ball. What what do you think needs to happen to be able to bridge that gap a little bit and get guys more opportunities? 
Well, I think it, I think it starts. It really starts with, like you said, giving them giving the opportunities. Like I've worked with, with a bunch a bunch of great coaches that, that that were black guys that you know, like Stan Drayton. He was never given the opportunity to learn the pass game and become a coordinator because he's running back coach. Needs to be a great recruiter. A lot of pressure put on him as a minority guy to be one of the best recruiters because obviously the majority of players are minorities. So I think it's systematic. Like it's set up right now where those are the roles that 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 they need filled. And I think coaches are are really ignorant to the fact that you don't need to do it that way. I was a white guy. I recruited St. Louis, Miami, like Virginia Beach. Like, what does it matter? Why do you need a minority guy to be a lead recruiter and coach running backs? You don't. Like, you, you just need to put guys in position to expand and grow as coaches. And some staffs do a good job of that, and some staffs just don't. You know, they hire a guy – and honestly, I think sometimes coaches make bad decisions on hiring guys that are awful football coaches that are minority guys, but they're great recruiters. And and it's like you can find a guy who's a great recruiter and a great football coach, right? Just because th- this guy plays the, the recruiting game well, that doesn't mean he should be coaching at Tennessee. You know what right. I mean? But right. they have a reputation. They're they're one of the best recruiters in the country. It's like, no, you, you're you're taking a spot of what could be a great football coach. Just because a guy can bullshit kids, that you know, there's there's too many great minority coaches out there that that can that can become like Alex Atkins, one of the smartest football coaches I've ever ever been around. Like yeah. black, white, Chinese, it doesn't matter. He's right. just really good, and and part of that is he was given those opportunities, um, and part of it is, I mean, he just loved football and studied the hell out of it. When I was at, at Ohio State, he was at he used to call me every off season asking questions about, hey, I got your cut ups. Tell me about this play. Tell me about that play. Like he worked at it. Right. And so, you know, never mind black or white or whatever, like co- to, to advance in the profession, you need to be a coordinator, which I disagree with entirely, by the way. I think offensive coordinator becoming a head coach, they're two opposite. They're, they have no similarities in position. Just because you're a good play caller doesn't mean you're going to be a good head coach. I would honestly say a guy that coaches running backs and can and re- recruit really well will be a better head coach than the guy calling, a, you know, the, the best red zone offense. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's part of the problem, too is how, how guys get jobs, right? It's search firms looking for big names that are sexy and will make boosters happy, not going to get who the best head coach could be, right? Because Tony Alford's a running back coach at Ohio State right now. He hasn't got a look as a head coach. He's been Notre Dame, Ohio State. He's one of the smartest football coaches and, and, and a great football coach, but it's not sexy to hire t- Tony Alford, right? And so he's, he, doesn't, he hasn't got the opportunity yet which is absurd because he runs his meeting room as well as anyone I've been around. He's an excellent recruiter and that's what you need as a head coach. So I think it's, it's systematic. It's a problem from the top down. And, and I think one of the biggest things is people that hire coaches, right? These search firms and ADs, they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand football. They don't understand coaching. And so they're not hiring the right guys. And when, when Stan got that shot at temple, I've never been happier because they made a great decision. Stan's not calling plays, but he's a great, fit as a head coach. You know what I mean? Now, when you heard National Signing Day, um, Hunter flipped from Florida State to Jackson State, and it and it created, obviously, days and days of dialogue and conspiracy yeah. theories and all of that. What were your thoughts when you first heard that Dion got the number one recruit in the country to Jackson State? I love it. I love it, and if you really mainly because I'm, I'm I just am in, in love with the history of the game and guys doing what's best for them. But if you study the history of the game, right before segregation, before they allowed uh, black kids to play college football, like the HBCUs were it. Yeah. You talk about great football, it was it. And then what happened? 
these big time schools went in and they said, all right, we can make money off of letting these kids play. Right. So they just obliterated the HBCUs and took all the best players. And then then they can make money with them, you know, filling the stadiums and all that. And they just destroyed that level of football, which was it was absurd that, that it was ever a necessity. But now I love it. I love to see it because you can go you can go to the NFL from anywhere and. That kid making that flip, one, I love it for Dion because he rattled the world, right? He shook the world up. And two, I love it for HBCUs because it's it's great football. They, they- you know what? Deion Sanders, Deion Sanders is the NCAA worst nightmare. Oh, for sure. You know why? He black. He 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 outgoing. He rich already. You can't buy him off. Yeah. And he gonna do it his way, yeah. and now he winning like he doing it his way and is being successful. Man, they can hey, Dion, Dion for president. Fuck it, man, Dion for president. <laughs> Dion for president. Twenty twenty two. Just believe in Dion, man. It's gonna happen. Heck like, yeah. and and it's gonna become more common. And and this wasn't the first instance. There's been some things, some basketball players that did it, and just this was the biggest example of it. But. But there's been kids that say, you know what? This is what I want to do. I want to go to a historically black college. I, I, told, I told somebody this, too, about Deion Sanders. When he walk in your house, the first thing y'all got to realize is he was poor. He started where you at. So he know exactly what you want. Like, he know exactly what you want. But more importantly, he know exactly how to get it. Right. He can get you there, too, right? He like, who going to tell Deion, like, if you play D-back, you play yeah. D-back. Who gonna tell Dion I don't want to come play D back for him? Nobody. Like, think about that. But, but to, and, and I mean to, to go further than that, I agree. I agree with you. But also, Dion's a great coach. He's oh, yeah. not he's not just some guy's a great player that, mm-hmm. that can relate. And I mean, you you look at what he's done in youth sports, you look at what he's he's doing uh where where now in college football, he's a great football coach too. And so now that's I mean, that's a dangerous combination. A great football coach with his personality, his celebrity, his career, and and his just—he's dynamic now. That you—that's—he's changing college football right in front of our eyes. Yeah, he definitely—he definitely changed the game, and and I think that uh, I think that Dion is also what he's done is he's forced the other schools in the SWAC to step up. Oh, you yeah. well, see, see, here go the thing. coaching hires across the board in that conference. And you, because they're they're gonna like all things in competition. They're but, gonna but go to thing though. Yeah. The solution, the solution is not just going to hire a bunch of ex NFL players at HBCUs. No, you gotta have what Dion got. Right. It, it, it's it's only maybe three guys that got what Dion Sanders got that can go be a head coach at the HBCU. Two of them, I'm gonna say, is Ed Reed and Ray Lewis, and maybe Randy Moss. They got that it factor that the young kids relate to them. Like Randy Moss walking your house, you're gonna be like, God damn, you got man. (laughs) Ed Reed walking your house, like you just can't nothing. I, 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 like you just can't hire any. NFL guy and think that's the solution. It got to be the, the, the right kind of guy. And it's got to be somebody that knows the game really well. Like Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, like those guys were like expert students of the game, right? Like they knew football as well or better than their coaches. Like just, just like Dion did. Right. And and if you get a guy like that, like you said, with the, with those personalities and that, that wow factor. Yeah. Because everybody, everybody like, 
HBCU football is finna come back up, I believe. Dion is finna just, I'm not saying he like just the messiah of resurrection of HBCU football, but he the guy who opening the floodgate and causing change. And wow. if they keep on building it and, and, and hiring correctly, HBCU football could be a viable thing in 10, 15 years. Well, it is. And, and I had to say this, my former player, Quill Glass, was the SWAC player, the offensive player of the year the last two years at Alabama A&M. And when he went to Alabama A&M, you know, people were kind of like HBCU football eyes. You know, it's not that big of a deal. But once Dion came and then we had the COVID deal and so they put all the SWAC games on ESPN, Glass like blew up. Like, and it helped. And, and just having Dion there raised his profile a lot. And he's got a legitimate chance to play in the NFL now. And, and he's in the Shrine Bowl. You know, he's got some real opportunities. He hired a good agent. And, um, and, and I just think that it rose the profile completely for football at the HBCU level. There's no doubt it did. And it's, when that happens, it's a beautiful thing, right? Like, like hiring Dion, like you said it a minute ago, it made everyone else in the conference go, man, all right, we, we gotta, we gotta level up or else we just, we're just going to get run through year in, year out. Right. It kind of happened in a different way when urban Meyer got hired in the, in the big 10. I mean, they didn't really recruit. They didn't go mm -hmm. down South. They didn't, I don't know if the big 10 went to St. Louis ever. Right. But urban Meyer comes in and like, we're going to recruit nationally. We're going to try to go beat Alabama. And the rest of the, I remember Brett Bielema quit. Like he left Wisconsin. Cause he was like, this is not how we do it up here. He said in a press conference, like, you don't, you don't, we don't recruit like that up here. That's what they do in the South. And it was like, what? Then you're going to keep losing to the, to the SEC. What do you mean? And, and when Urban so, came so in, so in, your opinion, in your opinion, in, in your opinion, how important is in, in the grand scheme of things winning in state recruiting? Uh, I mean, it's huge. Uh, you, you can't lose great players out of your own state and, and expect to compete you know, in, in the big time, whatever, if it's, you know, you're talking about division one power five football, you can't, you can't let Ohio kids be going to Michigan and, and expect to be successful. Right. But at the end of the day, we told every coach in Ohio, like, listen, we love Ohio kids. We would, we would love to have all Ohio kids, but we're trying to win a national championship. So we're going to recruit the best players in America. And if they're all in Ohio, they're all in Ohio. But if I can go to St. Louis and get a, a, the, a, the number one receiver in the country and the number four receiver in the, in the country is in Ohio, I want the number one receiver. I want the best player in the country. And so you got to keep those kids in state, but not at cost of missing out on a great player, right? Like we've had, I, there were several receivers that, that left Ohio that I, you know, they, they ended up being really good players, but they weren't as good as the kid that I brought in from South Florida or wherever. And people were like, how'd you let that kid go to Michigan state? And I'm like, well, look at the roster. I took these three kids instead. And even today you wouldn't trade them for the other kid. Right. So it's important to keep those kids in state. Um, but you got to get the best players you can get to compete in the, in the landscape the way it is now. Because now it's championship or bust because guys get fired right yep. away. Like yeah, no, it's doubt. no more, it's no more rebuilding. It's no. no more. What do you think about some of the schools and how quickly they're firing their coaches? Right. And, and, and moving on from them. Do you think that's good for football, bad for football, or do we just have to accept the fact that that's the way that it is now? You know, I, I, I think it's it's bad for football for one reason, right, is because of the people that are making the decisions, right? They're hiring guys, and they don't know what they're doing. They're making bad hires or sometimes good hires, and they don't let the person let, let that coach 
kind of build his program. So I think the biggest problem is who is making the decisions, right? These ADs that don't understand football are hiring search firms that are, you know, they're all, it's all political, right? You hire this search firm to help you find a head coach. Well, guess what? They're tied into this agent. This agent has these three coaches that work for him. So he's going to tell them to pick one of those three. So that agent makes a percentage off his contract. That search firm gets a kickback. It's just, it's just so screwed up where now it's like, all right, should coaches be fired so quickly? No, but the people making all these decisions are idiots. They're out of touch. They don't know what they're doing. So they're hiring the wrong guys, then firing, sometimes firing the guy that should be fired and firing a guy that shouldn't be fired. It's just a mess in the administrative level. So I think it's it's bad for football when guys are getting fired a year or two. Like, what are we talking about? LSU, Auburn, a year removed after a national championship, both coaches are fired. Yeah. It's like, wow, but that guy for, forgot how to coach in one year? Like, what happened? So, like, when I heard that Lincoln Riley was going to USC and Brian Kelly was going to LSU, is it crazy to you the amount of money they paying guys now? Crazy. And can we can you blame those guys for taking those kind of deals? No, I can't blame them. I mean, they opened up a whole new a whole new uh, era of college coaching. I mean, you know, you guys know, ten years ago that never happened. You, know, you got the Notre Dame job, you're get you're either there for life or you're fired. Like, and it doesn't matter if. Any job comes open. Same with Oklahoma, all those blue bloods. Um, but isn't it funny how they could never afford they, they would never let the NIL happen? Not enough money in college football for to, to go around for players. All these there's too many players, all these players are getting paid now, and coaches are getting paid a hundred million dollar contracts. Like they all they had the money the whole time. Like it's just crazy to me that that now it's like now we can pay coaches 10 million dollars a year as opposed to Four years ago, the, the cap was $6 million, and the players are getting monies and deals from boosters. It's just there's so much money in college football that it, it's, it's a, it's a high-stakes game, right? You pay a guy $100 million, you get the coach you want because you need to win now or else the AD's fired, right? Everyone's fired. Like you said, it's a win-now society in college athletics, and with that comes big paydays and also quick triggers to fire guys, right? If you right. don't win and you're getting paid $10 million a year, you're out real quick. Mm -hmm. So, guys, that's really all we had today for our show today, man. Zach, we appreciate you coming on. Um, you were you did a great job today for us, man. We, we go way back, and so we really appreciate it. It's so glad to see you doing as well as you're doing in the way that you bounce back. I appreciate it, guys, man. It was cool. To, it was good to catch up, man. Hope you guys are doing great. <laughs> <laughs> guys, this is Carl Reed signing off with my co-host, Carl Noodle Washington, and this is the Run Up the Score podcast thanks zach man appreciate, appreciate you bro hey appreciate you all right talk to you later brother